Today on Peace Talks Radio, two authors who have written world histories, focusing more on peace than on war. One of them is Peter Stearns, author of Peace in World History. Just look in a standard textbook and look under peace. Again, once in a while you'll find a specific treaty entrance or something like that. But otherwise, uh, the, the subject is largely lacking. Also, Anthony Adolph, author of Peace, a World History. It's a dangerous way of looking at history to see only the warfare and the conflicts and the enslavements and the genocides. It's a very pessimistic view of history and by focusing on the peaceful side of the narrative of history, I mean in local and national and global senses, we get a fuller view of history and also a more positive view that can be built on rather than one that just needs to be negated. Histories of peacemakers, peace philosophers, and peace periods, today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Now here's a phrase we've uttered on our show once in a while since starting it back in 2002. Why does it seem that most history books focus on the stories of war and those who fight them, and not so much, or at all, on the periods of peace and the conflicts resolved nonviolently without waging war and the people who stood for peace? Well, the history books include a few, but most of us could count the ones ever mentioned on one hand. So you can imagine my excitement when I came across not one, but two history books with these titles, Peace, A World History, and Peace in World History. Yeah, cool, I know, right? Both books scan through the timeline of history for peace periods, peace leaders, key philosophers, important turning points, and more. And we'll hear from both authors today. Later, Canadian scholar Anthony Adolph. But first, Peter Stearns, professor of history and former provost of George Mason University in Virginia, author of 2014's Peace in World History. Peter Stearns told me about his research into his first chapters about early humankind. My assumption going in, naively, was that early humans must have participated in war rather frequently because that's sort of our caveman image. In fact, it really looks like war as an experience was quite rare before the advent of agriculture. Uh, violence wasn't rare, so I'm not trying to, to redo our view of human nature. Murders were probably fairly common. But collective acts of violence take a degree of organization that probably was absent, and the most important thing is to realize that hunting and gathering people were accustomed to moving around, and most commonly, when violence threatened, they'd simply move. And so let's remind listeners then, in general, what was the impact of uh, agriculture on all this? Well, yeah, agriculture certainly in some ways didn't encourage war. War is bad for agriculture. But agriculture saw many people settle down, um, saw many people, which meant that you couldn't pack up and leave as readily if violence threatened. Agriculture generated surpluses, which meant that there were settled targets for marauders to, uh, uh, to attack. And agriculture ultimately generated states. One of the functions of states was protection, but unfortunately, or at least inevitably, once states began to form protective forces, they began to think, well, maybe we could uh, use them for something other than protection. We could grab some other territory as well. 
But what was going on in the earliest days of agriculture that might have uh, given humans hope for being able to cooperate and, uh, you know, battle those trends that you just described? Well, I mean, agriculture certainly involved a degree of coordination. For example, if agriculture is based on irrigation, it requires people to work together. It requires uh, some development of a, of a notion of property rights and laws. So agriculture certainly uh, advanced the need for coordination. Uh, unfortunately, that need did not necessarily super, supersede the, uh, uh, the new opportunities for warfare. So it was a mixed picture. Um, we, we know that some agricultural peoples valued peace. Uh, they, they constructed deities devoted to peace. In early days, even war itself was frequently interrupted for things like harvest because agriculture was so important. But the, the, uh, the mixture was complicated. Now, you, of course, note the development of the world's dominant religions in your book, uh, peace, uh, peace in World History. And you set out uh, three points that affect the history of peace and war about them. Could you summarize those? Well, yeah, the, the religions um, introduced important new elements, and those three turned out to be the leading missionary religions, but some of the same comments would apply to some other faiths like Hinduism and Judaism. So these major religions uh, had three, frankly, contradictory potentials. On the one hand, they all expressed uh, deep interest in peace. Uh, the afterlife was supposed to be peaceful. Uh, people were urged to to uh, uh, commit to peace on this earth. Islam probably had the most complicated initial message in this regard, but there are statements in the Quran that are very, very supportive of peace. So, point one, the new religions encouraged more explicit interest in peace than probably had prevailed before then. Second, the religions also, however, the, the three missionary religions particularly, thought that they had identified the, the one basic truth. Their religion had the truth. Other religions did not. They might nevertheless tolerate other religions. This varied. But the notion that you have the truth is probably not a, uh, an approach that's optimally conducive to peace. And then finally, and this is an interesting aspect, I think, particularly for Buddhism, but it could affect the others. The new religions could, uh, in essence, urge people to pay attention primarily to their own spiritual well-being, their own salvation, and not be particularly interested in social issues of peace one way or the other. In other words, they could pull back, which was a, a comment that's been particularly applied to Buddhism. Not that they'd become warlike, they simply were not, were not interested in problems of this earth. Well, and that disparity in some ways has lingered even to some cases through to today, I think some would argue. Oh, I think clearly. Again, uh, if you look at different uh, national uh, Buddhist approaches, for example, the Japanese Buddhist tradition, uh, partly because of the experience of World War II, is very peace conscious and very active. Whereas Korean Buddhism, which is equally interesting as a religious movement, doesn't play much role in peace activities one way or the other. So yeah, these disparities and, and, and tensions still exist. Now, um, in reviewing the rise of those religions, as you say, all three points have played out through history, and yet all the religions have contributed tent posts for peace pursuits throughout the ages, too. And as you poured through the stories again to write this book, 
What were your predominant feelings about religion and the hope for peace? Oh, well, I don't have any striking insights because obviously the potential cuts in both directions. I think one has to be deeply impressed with religion and not just the three I've mentioned. There are elements of this in Judaism and Hinduism as well. One has to be deeply impressed with religion as a potential source of peace leadership. That's been true periodically throughout history. Uh, it was true for Gandhi. It was true for Martin Luther King. Uh, so that's that's perhaps the most important point to emphasize. Um, but religion can also promote a, a sense of war's inevitability. It can promote a sense that war on behalf of the faith is a good thing. And as you suggest, we see that in the world today as well. So I think the message is quite simply mixed. It depends on what strain of the religion an individual or group wants to emphasize. Peter, are there some characters in some of the histories of religion that you find especially fascinating that are not part of most people's consciousness? Could you give an example or two that uh, uh, impressed you as you revisited or uh, dug into the data here? Well, I mean, uh, the, the ones that interested me most, perhaps predictably, were people who, who were not part of my own uh, previous religious tradition. So I'm very interested in somebody like the Emperor Akbar in India in the 16th century. He was a Mughal emperor. And like some other leaders, he had a, an initial period where he engaged actively in war, and it, it ended up disgusting him, so he turned unusually uh, explicitly toward a pursuit of peace and toleration. Uh, he, was, he emphasized, although he was a Muslim, he emphasized the importance of toleration for Hindus and other religions in India. Uh, he talked, he and his chief minister talked about the importance of... Uh, uh, harmonious relations with other states. So I, I wish I could say he set up a tradition that had lasting impact. I don't think he did. His successors uh, increasingly ignored, ignored his advice. But he's a really interesting figure and one that you you just don't don't expect in terms of superficial understanding of uh, of Islamic military traditions. Um, then I'm, I'm deeply impressed, as to some extent we've already implied, I'm deeply impressed with some contemporary Buddhist leaders, uh, such as Dr. Ikeda in Japan, uh, who are unusually explicit about the importance of peace. I hadn't heard, from, heard, heard of some of these people before I uh, became interested in this project, but um, they've, they've persuaded me of the, uh, both the importance and the potential in specific efforts at peace in the contemporary world. Now, Dr. Stearns, where is the beginning of the idea that states, secular governments could override religious influence and promote peace as simply a choice that benefits all? And, you know, I know I'm asking for kind of a crash course here, but maybe you could, you know, direct us to the top of that idea. Okay. Well, I think there, there, there are two answers to the question, and I'm still puzzling it out to, to some extent. Uh, the, the, the notion that specific states associated with one religion is, I think, not actually all that traditional. Rome, for example, although it had a civic religion, the Roman Empire was, was, was widely tolerant. It broke down a bit when it came to Jews and Christians, but for many other religions, um, early societies, or early states embraced a, a pluralistic approach because their goal was political survival, not religious, uh, not religious uh, conversion. So uh, I think it was the 
advent of religions that were more bent on um, identifying a particular universal truth that push states more toward a, um, uh, a systematic intolerance, which comes up certainly in Christian Europe during what are commonly called the Middle Ages, comes up frequently in Islam. It's less common in Buddhism. But uh, again, you get, uh, you get uh, movements against this trend. I've mentioned Akbar in the Islamic tradition, Muslim rulers who believed that tolerance was important without abandoning their own religious belief. And then certainly in Europe, I and mean, this is fairly familiar, the um, Treaty of Westphalia in the 17th century, uh, which essentially ended the religious wars in Europe, was a treaty born of exhaustion, but a treaty that said, look, I mean, this fighting is getting us nowhere. Um, we still believe our religion is the only true one, but we've got, we've got to admit that we're not going to win this war, and we have to find a way to accommodate other belief systems. So that was a turning point in European history that's fairly familiar. It was, again, um, uh, the result of, of over a century of, of, of recurrently brutal war. So it wasn't a joyous embrace of toleration for the, uh, for the good of humanity. But I think it did have lasting consequences in reducing religion as a war factor in Europe itself. Now, there's so little recorded about the history of indigenous peoples of the Americas before European contact with them in the 15th and 16th centuries. But what stands out about what the historical record has shown about those societies that contributes to an understanding about humans and peacemaking? Well, I mean, obviously they varied. Uh, the most obvious um, examples of, of uh, native societies where, where organized states emerged uh, is they were, they were frequently uh, pretty violent and, and pretty aggressive. Uh, the Aztecs, for example, were a, a notoriously warlike people that imposed their um, uh, the imposed conquest on a number of minority groups in Central America. But it is also interesting that a number of native groups developed uh, an unusual commitment to peace, um, an unusual effort not only to um, avoid war, but even to discipline uh, the development of anger in their own community. So you have perhaps inevitably, I mean, this is part of the human laboratory. You have some stark contrasts in the Native American traditions that point in, in diverse directions. Now, you do mention the Confederacy of Iroquois tribes. Uh, you write about some mingling of European ideas and local peace initiatives in North America. Right. The Iroquois tribes did work out, although they were, they were warlike up to a point. They channeled their aggression as... Uh, uh, as careful as they could against outside groups, they did develop an interesting set of um, uh, understandings within their own communities that uh, inhibited warfare against kindred tribes. Uh, you mentioned William Penn and the Quakers reaching out to Native Americans a bit. There were other examples, but you call them short-lived. And you also write, I wanted to ask you about this quote, that the Americas in the early modern period contributed nothing very durable to the history of peace. And I wanted to be clear about what is the early modern period? Okay, the early modern period uh, for the Americas, the early modern period runs essentially from the advent of Europeans, Columbus' discovery, and then the advent of Europeans um, through the middle of the 18th century. It, 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 the ending point is not decisively determined, but a convenient ending point is the Seven Years' War that ran from 1756 to 63. Uh, and my statement is basically um, 
the the overarching fact of this period in the history of the Americas is European violence against native societies. Uh, there were some interesting movements toward peace as well, including, as you suggest, uh, William Penn's interest in uh, Iroquois peacemaking traditions. But this was a period of considerable violence, and um, the Americas were sta- were established. The, the The American colonies were established on that basis. And then, what role do documents like the Constitution, Bill of Rights, uh, have? Do you think in the long arc of peace? Well, the the Bill of Rights certainly was um, part of an interesting new wave of thinking derived essentially from the Enlightenment that argued that human beings have certain rights simply because they're human beings. Um, The American formulation was uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, Some people would put in property that mix. So this was a potentially strong, innovative statement that uh, people, just because they're people, regardless of their other attributes, uh, should be given respect and dignity. The rights obviously pointed, among other things, to religious toleration, uh, and they could point to um, a wider set of alternatives to warfare on grounds that war was uh, one of the most fundamental denials of rights available. Um, It was no accident that the same spirit that led to the American Bill of Rights um, uh, resulted in, to my knowledge, the first recommendation that the uh, that a government set up a, uh, a Department of Peace or a Ministry of Peace. That was a suggestion of Benjamin Rush in the 1790s. It didn't happen, but this new kind of progressive thinking did connect to um, a really interesting surge of anti-war sentiment in the late 18th and particularly the early 19th centuries. And then you do write that the long 19th century, and you write it that way, the long 19th century was not a good one for peace. Is it long because World War I seemed to be a result of 19th century trends? Is that why they call it the long century? Well, it's it's long century. I mean, uh, the term is not mine. It comes from the British historian Eric Hobsbaum. Eric Hobsbaum. But uh, long 19th century is basically a statement. Uh, characteristics of the 19th century began to emerge in the final decades of the 18th century. This is when you get the Enlightenment, which we've just been talking about. It's when you get the first stages of the Industrial Revolution. And they and yes, they extend all the way to World War One. So you're talking about a period that's upwards of 150 years long. Uh, so the long 19th century is simply meant to say the 19th century is the core, but you have to go a little bit before and a little bit after to capture the major trends. You also write, though, that this period indisputably played a major role in the history of peace. Uh, the details are in your book again, but what really does stand out? Well, I mean, I was I was most impressed partly because it was new to me and I was embarrassed that I didn't know as much about it as I should have. Uh, the proliferation of peace ideas and peace, peace movements from the 1790s onward uh, is, is really absolutely extraordinary. Uh, you get... Uh, peace groups springing up in the United States, in Britain, in in virtually every Western country. They agitate for peace. They petition governments. Uh, They urge not only religious toleration, but they try to oppose the growing excesses of nationalism. And while these movements, it's it's easy to dismiss them because they do not lead to peace. They do begin to encourage institutions like the... uh, the, uh, 
court of arbitration in The Hague at the end of the 19th century. They do begin to encourage the idea that maybe some international political linkages could form that would make conflict less inevitable. So these are not simply idealistic um, movements with no concrete result. They have not ended war, but they have ultimately helped generate institutions that we still rely on, that we increasingly rely on, to try to avoid the necessity of war. So I think the movement is really significant. And interestingly, they haven't been forgotten despite the fact that, I guess we could say that for the most part, um, history books, uh, history curricula has overlooked them. Yeah, no, th that's unquestionably true. Um, and among other things, one of the interesting aspects of uh, the peace movement, for example, uh, in the United States after 1815, it had education as one of its core emphases. So these movements were urging states to seek alternatives to war. Uh, they petitioned governments when conflict loomed, but they also were trying to develop larger educational programs for citizens in what was increasingly a set of democratic or increasingly democratic societies. More with Peter Stearns, author of Peace in World History, later in our show, and you can hear my entire interview with him at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com for more of this episode and the rest of our archive going back to 2002. Next up, independent scholar Anthony Adolph, who also wrote A World History of Peace, when Peace Talks Radio continues in a moment. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. Good to have you with us today. I'm Paul Ingalls, series producer, talking with two authors who've written world history books from a peacemaking perspective instead of a war-centric perspective. Anthony Adolph got online with us from Quebec. His book, Peace, A World History, was published in 2009. And I asked him to start by reading a quote that he uncovered in his research. This is directly from Confucius, uh, and it's related to his philosophical imperative of peace. When the world is investigated, knowledge is extended. When knowledge is extended, wills become sincere. When wills are sincere, hearts are redressed. When hearts are redressed, individuals are cultivated. When individuals are cultivated, families become harmonious. When families are harmonious, state becomes orderly. And when states are orderly, there is peace in the world. Why did that uh, passage speak to you so much that you wanted to highlight it in your book? I think it, it goes back to what I was calling the organic view of peace, is that peace 
has a, a foundation in our individual lives and grows out from there. If we foster inner peace, then we can develop peace in our families. If we foster peace in our families, then we can develop peace in our societies. And it's, it's a really progressive and, and simplified way of looking at how we as individuals can have an agency in creating peace for ourselves and our societies. Now, Anthony Adolph, obviously you're very interested and uh, moved and committed to this topic, but I was imagining as you researched it and then writing about it, uh, like in you're writing this chapter on the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and Reformation, you seem to be able to link something of a daisy chain of peacemakers who just keep writing and keep passing on the notions of peacemaking to each other, although many of them are persecuted, imprisoned, some killed. What is it like for you as a researcher to connect to these stories of determined peaceful philosophers over the years? What does it feel like to delve into um, the, the people who were talking about this centuries ago and trying to move it forward? Well, that's one of the things that amazed me as I was researching and writing the book is that the inspirations that one generation of peacemakers got from the other, not with just from one to the other, but across centuries and across millennia. And it's that connection between different kinds of peace and peacemaking brought into the present that really inspired me to write the book. The fact that there was not so much literature on pro-peace activism was the initial spark, but what pushed me through the research was realizing that this continuity between the different generations in which this book participates, it's that inspiration and resilience that, that comes through that that really inspired me to push through the 10 years of research that it took to write the book. And I'll bet that leaves you feeling like you could at least be a small part of that chain. That's what I'm hoping, at least, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, you've often said that peace really is the mainstay of history. Say more about that. What do you mean? If you look at uh, how history is written and historiography is written, it tends to be a series of wars. So all the dates that are given are histories of wars and the treaties that came after. And that gives me a really skewed view of history. It's uh, a negative view of history that sees wars as the main punctuations and completely overlooks the long or short periods of peace in between them and what really constituted those periods. It's that shift that I th thought to elaborate in the book is to how, how can we focus on the periods of peace in between the wars rather than wars being the main punctuations of history. Right, and you've written that people living peacefully through most of time uh, is a fact, otherwise we wouldn't be here now talking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's a joke, but it's not a joke. The fact that if it wasn't for the, the peaceful people and the people who, who actively sought peace or passively sought peace and don't realize that they're doing it, people who just live peacefully, that we wouldn't be here to have this very interview. We, the, the world wouldn't exist as we know it. And we wouldn't have the lifestyles that we do today, positive or negative. What is the consequence of not making the study of peacemaking a foundation of our history education? Again, I think it gives a very skewed view of history, and, and, it, it, and it focuses on the destructive capacities of humankind rather than their proactive capacities. It's a dangerous way of looking at history to see only the warfare and the conflicts and the 
enslavements and the genocides. It's a very pessimistic view of history. And by focusing on the peaceful side of the the narrative of history, I mean, in local and national and global senses, we get a fuller view of history and also a more positive view that can be built on rather than one that just needs to be negated. You know, it makes me think of that oft-quoted George Santayana line that those who don't remember their history are doomed to repeat it. But I'm wondering if, in this case, if all we remember is war, are we not bound to repeat it as the solution to conflict most often heralded? I would I would definitely agree with that. And I would also say that that's one main reason why we need to remember the peaceful times too, because we want to repeat those. We don't want to repeat the war-torn times. We want to repeat the peaceful times. And so by studying those, we're more likely to repeat them. You move ahead to a chapter called The Ascent of Nation States and to figures like John Locke, writing in England in the late 1600s, early 1700s, a letter concerning toleration and two treaties of government, which wrestles with a a way to govern in an interfaith way with citizens of multiple religions. Remind us a little bit of the pillars of his arguments. The difference there, I, yeah, what what I think needs to be un, I mean, important to highlight then is that he was res- writing in relation to Hobbes. Hobbes had this very dualistic view of peace as the 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 as being the absence of chaos. And what Locke does is that he says, no, there can be different streams of contributors to peace and peacemaking. That's the, the, the thrust of his argument, that there's not two opposing forces, one pro-peace, one anti-peace, that, that there's different streams that all need to contribute to the great river of peace. That's, that's Locke's main, uh, one way of phrasing Locke's contribution to the intellectual side of peacemaking. Well, in many ways, these issues um, and another idea that you spend some time exploring, that peace depends on a favorable balance of trade, continue to dictate our periods of war and peace, and even conversation in political campaigns of the modern day. Yes, I, I, I think there, there tends still to be a, a, a dominance of the economic factors that contribute to peace, and that's, that's a mainstay throughout history, and especially today, that it's the economic basis of peace. But I, what I would like to stress is that those are not the only ones. There are other forces in play. There are the the spiritual, the physical the emotional side of peacemaking that also contribute to peace. And it's not just about balances of trade. It's not just about fiscal deficits. It's about how how we as individuals can live peaceful principles. Right. As you nudge forward through the centuries, you explore the writings of Immanuel Kant, late 1700s or so, and and the development of what you call the organized peace movement in the mid-1800s with intellectuals holding international peace conferences in Paris and Geneva, and this is something of a new thing. Interestingly, I thought that later in this process was a focus on trying to get buy-in on peace movements from the lower classes. Um, Who was doing that, and and why, or more importantly, you know, why was that, and does that continue to be important, the start of a grassroots social justice movement? I think I think the the pioneers in that were really the Reformation groups, and this was in relation to the the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was a very dominating one world, one peace kind of organization, and the Reformation churches 
the Mennonites, the Jacobites, they they were the ones who said, no, wait a minute, there's different ways that we can achieve peace, and let's experiment. Let's experiment with how we do our agriculture. Let's experiment with how we see our ethics. Let's experiment with how we we view our social relations, and it's something that can be put in place by the general masses of people, not just by the, the intellectual elites or the academics or the, the political elites, but really how, how can the people themselves advance a, a peace movement that's fundamentally different from what the one that dominates today, and that, that was the Reformation. It's fun for someone who's interested in peace to read your book because you do move through history and uh, you name check uh, people like Emerson and Thoreau and Tolstoy and Baha'u'llah, the Baha'i faith who called for nonviolent, non-nationalistic, interreligious peace. Is there a favorite stance or person or story that you like to, to share with people? I think it would be, this may sound quirky, but there's uh there's in the Japanese tradition there's the the Shinto tradition and they they they're the ones who really focused on how we can be attuned with nature and 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 live a life in peace with nature and I think that's one of the the the, the main takeaways for me was from from the Shinto tradition um, you start to see the beginnings of writings about global markets and free trade and international trade that uh, you talked a little bit about before. John Stuart Mill uh, is one that you highlight who was writing in the late 1800s that international trade was the great guarantee of peace in the world, great permanent security of uninterrupted progressive ideas, he wrote. Again, a lot of people hang their hat on these ideas today, but it seems there's always something that eludes each philosopher or each succeeding generation about unintended consequences of these trade and free market uh, forces in terms of developing peace. You know, like these days, you might say jobs shipped overseas or livelihoods taken away inside some of the trading states. Would you agree that there always seems to be sort of a a good idea followed by a period of correction courses that try to fine-tune what somebody is so certain is a good idea to uh, to balance the world and to help promote peace there 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 is it i mean i think it's important to stress that that peace and peacemaking have always been an iterative process there has never been one one be all and end all uh statement about peace or or way of making peace that has 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 had the final word it's it's one one movement and then like you said corrections to that movement and then another one and then another correction to that movement there's there has not been it's always been an iterative process it's never been one that that somebody can have the final say on and i do want to allow you to make mention of this in some way because it's such a huge part of uh, I would say, more recent history, and by that I mean the last three or four hundred years. But you make an effort to find some useful strains of peacemaking in the history of colonization and imperialism, but you yourself suggest that it's a hard sell uh, to look at that history in any positive life because there was great suffering among indigenous populations around the world. 
But where did the light shine through it all in helping to define peacemaking in the future through that period? Or, or was it merely mostly a case of don't do it this way ever again? The, no, there is, there, there's a tendency to, I mean, uh, and right, understandably so, to see colonialism period as purely negative forces and just things that we need to learn from in the negative. But that takes away from the view that there, there, the, the fact that colonialism and imperialism shaped the way that peacemaking is done today between between the the empires how they made and maintained peace is very similar to how states today make and maintain peace and it's that's that learning from their mistakes but also from what they did right that's what i tried to focus on in the book hmm. and what would be an example or two of kind of what they did right because i think as you say most people think of the thumbnail um, definition of colonialism and imperialism in a very negative way. Well, I think de las Casas, uh, a figure, he, he stands out in that history as, as a great experimenter of how we can use the colonial framework uh, to foster peace rather than uh, take away from it, how we can use indigenous knowledge in combination with the imperial knowledge to advance both rather than imposing one on the other. De Las Casas mm. is a major figure in that. I guess at the beginning of some of these colonial uh, and imperial uh, insurgences that uh, you can find some examples of good intentions that quickly went awry, good intentions of what you just described beginning, but uh, it was hard to maintain often. Yeah, it's, a, it's an initial spark that often goes uh, goes out eventually. And that I think that comes across in colonialism and imperialism a lot is that there there were these uh, movements within it that tried to use it as a positive force, but were put out by the the imperial forces themselves. And it's that it's maintaining that 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 the anti-colonialists were so successful in is because they had a focus of resistance. Whereas the, the, the forces within imperialism, they were working within the grain. And that's what the, the, the difference between the two, how they worked, made them the most difference. That's Anthony Adolph from Quebec, an independent scholar and author of Peace, A World History. On Peace Talks Radio today, we're talking with two authors who've written histories of peacemaking, peace philosophies, peace periods. We'll have a bit more with Anthony Adolph later and more with Dr. Peter Stearns from George Mason University when we return on Peace Talks Radio in just a moment.
I'm Paul Ingalls. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We've been doing 12 episodes a year in this series since 2002, so you can find lots more at our website, peacetalksradio.com. We invite you to go, click around, listen, and learn. There you'll also hear lots more from today's authors, Anthony Adolph and Peter Stearns. Our complete interviews with both authors are on the website, including more about some of the historical research that both of them have done. Having done all this research and itemizing peacemaking figures, both of these authors also offer interesting conclusions, scaffolding for building a peaceful future. We'll get to some of that in a moment, but here again is Peter Stearns, author of Peace in World History. He teaches at George Mason University as a former provost there. Having heard Anthony Adolph quote Confucius at the start of our last segment, here was a question I had for Dr. Stearns. In your look at Rome and China and a thousand years of history from 700 BCE onward, you, you wonder if Chinese Confucian philosophy is the one that really outlasted the notions of peace from the Mediterranean. What were the one or two most important peace ideas to survive from each place? And what seems to have had more staying power in modern history? Well, that's, that's a great question. Uh, Confucian values obviously uh, emphasize the importance of the state. They emphasize the importance of order. So a, a devoted Confucianist was not going to plunge into war particularly heedlessly. And as you know, uh, classical China also generated a number of studies of war that urged that war was a last resort, uh, that all uh, other um, mechanisms should be exhausted before war was attempted. So I think it's fair to say that Chinese culture was fairly conservative about war. Doesn't mean they didn't fight, but um, militarism was not, in fact, uh, highly prized. And I think that's a tradition that in many ways has continued uh, through much of Chinese history. I think the uh, Greek and Roman legacy was was more checkered in this regard. Uh, Rome was a much more overtly militaristic society, uh, set up many more artistic monuments to war. Um, so a question, and it is a question, I don't have a firm answer. A question is, did different legacies get created all that time ago, such that China would remain not war-free, but more circumspect with regard to war. The Roman tradition would pass on a greater valuation of things military in ways that may affect uh, reactions even today. Right. I mean, there seems to be this ongoing theme of military engagement and violence being the history that is more celebrated, more documented. Uh, is this something that you're saying that was more prevalent in the Mediterranean than elsewhere in terms of what lasts in the record and what lasts in the artifacts? Right. Tentatively, I think the answer is yes, particularly when you look at the Roman Empire. Roman emperors were valued and valued themselves in terms of uh, their military achievements. Um, they depended on war extensively as a source of slaves. They depended on war as a means of being able to re reward their own armies. And while China wasn't entirely different, again, I don't want to overdo the, uh, the Chinese commitment to peace. I think China evolved a somewhat different system that made warfare less central. Now, moving on down the timeline, World War I, horrific war, something of a hopeful characterization after the war of it as the war to end all wars was, of course, as we know, extremely short-lived given that World War II exploded yes. about 20 years later. But Important elements of the modern peace movement uh, took root in those post-World War I years. Is that right? 
Yeah, up to a point. I mean, the first thing to say is one of the one of the reasons to study the history of peace is uh, to realize, and this is not a new finding, but to realize increasingly that some peace efforts are better than others. So the peace settlement that ended World War I was notoriously flawed. It was a much less well-designed, well-crafted um, um, settlement than the one that had ended the Napoleonic Wars a century before. So one of the things that, that you have to, one of the uses of, of a history of peace, I think, is to, is to help sort out uh, what works better and why. And World War I, in this case, is a case study of how not to do things. But the war did generate a new enthusiasm for pacifism, maybe some in some cases a little bit um, ill-informed, uh, and it certainly generated the League of Nations, which was a failure, but also a learning experience. So, um, you know, the, 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 the dominant theme about the League is it simply did not manage to contain the conflicts that arose in the 1930s, and that's true. But it did settle some conflicts, and its very weaknesses help people learn that next time around we had to do something that was a little bit uh, more advanced. And I think that has happened imperfectly, but definitely in, in, in a progressive vein. All right. So then World War II ends. What did we learn that we did well? Um, and then setting aside the introduction of nuclear weapons, which we can talk about in a moment. But in the aftermath, uh, let's highlight a couple of things that were implemented that showed that uh, the world may have learned a lesson or two from failures. Well, a little bit. Okay, so three obvious points at least. First place, and this is not just a result of generosity, it's partly the result of the fact that Cold War tensions began to emerge very quickly. Uh, first thing that was, quote, learned was that um, totally ungenerous treatment of your enemies is probably not smart. Because unless you're prepared to extinguish them altogether, which happily we weren't, you have to set up post-war settlements that allow them some breathing room and some recovery room. And that was done with regard to Germany. It was done with regard to Japan. And uh, the results, I think, have clearly benefited both those countries and the world community more generally. So that was one lesson learned. Second lesson learned both in the United States and in Europe, was that European, um, European traditions had, had, had simply broken down when it came to limiting the frequency and impact of war. So Europe need, needed to reconsider its state relations. Uh, this, was, this was spearheaded by a number of reformers, particularly in France, led ultimately to the European Economic Community, which in turn uh, begat the European Union, and from a continent that had been one of the leading centers of collective violence, Europe since 1945 has been amazingly peaceful. Not entirely so, and you always worry about the future, but the Europeans, at least for a couple of generations, have learned how to avoid war, and they did not know this before. And then the third lesson, again, clearly an imperfect one, but definitely an advance over the League, uh, the United Nations was created in ways that repaired some of the League's deficiencies. And while it's fashionable to criticize the UN for inadequacy, the UN actually has preserved or restored peace in a number of conflict situations, uh, particularly in the last 25 years, but in a couple of cases even before then. Now, your book is 
doubly good at pointing out some impressive chapters in peacemaking, and it also presents a lot of compelling and provocative questions for the future, among which I suppose is this one, is whether or not history can be certain yet about what the development of nuclear weapons brought to the table of peacemaking, weapons that were so horrible that only a few examples of their power have managed to go unused and have somehow coexisted with a statistical trend of less war in the last 50 years. Uh, we're still trying to sort that one out? Well, I think clearly so. I mean, I'd like to be optimistic. It is true that since 1945, to the best of my knowledge, this is the first time that the human species has possessed a weapon which it's managed not to use for this long a period. Um, we all have to hope that this continues. It obviously reflects the fact that these are unprecedented weapons. But um, uh, keeping the nuclear uh, nightmare at bay requires constant effort. And um, it's, I think, easy to forget amid all the troubles and distractions we have. It's easy to forget how central this is to, and it sounds exaggerated, it sounds... Uh, uh, excessive, but literally to the to the preservation of the human species and uh, the proliferation of weapons, uh, the fact that the major powers, um, at least some major powers recurrently, at least vaguely threaten that these weapons might come into play uh, is not entirely reassuring. So this is a chapter that's that's still being written. In your epilogue, you pose a number of these questions that I mentioned, among them this one. Why can't peace advocacy take its place alongside the promotion of human rights, pressing citizens and governments alike to shun war in favor of other means of resolving conflict? You kind of pose this question as a challenge to uh, the young people of, of the world now. And, and the thing that came up for me as a uh, nearly 60-something reader <laughs> is, you know, what's to suggest that... Uh, peace as a priority would be carried on by the youth into adulthood any better than the baby boomers did. I mean, there's more evidence of peace commitment and anti-war sentiment in the streets from the 1960s than maybe even today. And I'm wondering what your take on that is. Well, look, I mean, I think that's true. Um, so I, I, I wrote this book, among other things, because of a conviction that American society has become... Um, uh, too complacent about militarism. Um, we've learned how to conduct wars that don't impact the majority of citizens in their daily lives. Uh, we've learned how to com compartmentalize, and the net result of this is that we are, we are at war one way or another more years than not in the past 25 years, and to me that's deeply troubling. I'm not trying to, to get on a political soapbox here, but we need more opportunities within the United States to see peace as a desirable goal. It's fallen out of our political rhetoric. We talk about security, but we don't talk about peace. So I think the opportunity to um, encourage younger people to think of peace as a goal that ought to be sought at least as fervently as uh, uh, environmental quality, I think that's a, that's a desirable message, even if it's a political one. I think other societies, frankly, have become less militaristic than we are. And I think peace discussions in several other societies, I mean, obviously Japan and Germany, that have, have, that have strong peace cultures now. But I think peace discussions in other societies are um, more frequent and more possible than has become true in the United States. And I think that's a national issue we need to be willing to address.
George Mason University's Peter Stearns, author of Peace in World History. Again, more with him at peacetalksradio.com. And a return here to Anthony Adolph, our Canadian scholar, about the epilogue to his book. He called the epilogue The Puzzle of World Peace, and he proposes thinking about solutions as a pyramid of peace, which he calls his small contribution to the history of peace thought. He bases it on Abraham Maslow's Pyramid of Human Needs and Motives. And I asked Anthony Adolph to try to summarize it in a couple of minutes. As you said, it's based on Maslow, but it takes it in a more social sense. Maslow took his uh, Pyramid of Human Needs as, a, as the individual and in the pyramid of peace, what I try to do is I look at it as a more social sense, and I uh, social and what I call collective social being within a group and collective being between groups, and the the different meanings of peace that need to be built upon for world peace to be achieved. The bottom being corporeal, and includes things like education, healthcare, shelter, and sanitation and nutrition. The second being sanctuarial being minimal harm against nature, minimal state harm, minimal structural harm, and minimal interpersonal harm. Then socioeconomic peace, which is reductions of wealth disparities, elimination of discrimination, and full and free employment. Then inner peace, which is spiritual and intellectual attainment, recognition and respect, and quietude and plenitude, which brings us to world peace, which is ongoing investigation and critical dialogue, incentives and deterrence, and legitimacy and law. It's, that's that's the, the summary of the pyramid. And it's a way that we can uh, adjust our behavior as societies to see what we need to do next to achieve world peace. There was actually a study done following my book on, on using the pyramid to evaluate different peace levels of different societies. Now, as you move up your pyramid, uh, inner peace and world peace sit on the top. And uh, I found it interesting, a couple of your... Uh, comments about um, attaining inner peace. And you wrote that reaching the spiritual and intellectual attainment within one's grasp is a stepping stone uh, to more easily actualizable um, once the pyramid's previous levels and items are met. So you're suggesting that uh, spiritual, intellectual attainment of peace is somewhat codependent on getting basic needs met. And the only thing that kind of triggered in my mind is, is that I had a friend who went to visit third world countries and, and she met people, you know, living on dirt floors in chaotic cities with few basic needs met, but who seemed happier somehow. Uh, in some examples, uh, is there, you know, a spiritual plane that is possible without some of the basic needs being met? I I think it's important to to emphasize that if you have an empty belly, you you, you it's very hard to achieve inner peace. So it, it, in one sense, it is very important to achieve the basic necessities of life: food, sanitation, and healthcare being the 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 three major ones. Once those are attained, then the 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 you can pass on to the next phase which is the spiritual peace the the people that you talked about the in third world countries they do have the shelter assured they do have food in their belly and it's based on that that they can then achieve the the spiritual attainment and intellectual attainment that they strive for it's i wouldn't say it's 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 
I wouldn't say it's quantitatively different from the, the, the ones that can be achieved in industrialized societies, but it is qualitatively different. And it's, it's that, that difference that needs to be underscored in terms of the needs being met. Just because the needs being met doesn't mean that you will go on to the next phase. And just because the needs are met doesn't mean that you, just because the needs aren't met doesn't mean you can't go on to the next phase. But it is a, a, a prerequisite in a very strong sense. Well, you write at the end uh, of, of the book that uh, the world history of peace, if it teaches us one thing, it teaches us that in essence there are many world pieces and forcing them into a static one is not the answer. So I think you are starting to describe that. Say a little bit more about that. It's really the worldview that came out of the Cold War, that there was one version of world peace that needed to be imposed upon the whole world, whether it was communism or capitalism. And it was that one view of peace that needed to be imposed upon the whole world that that was the driving force of many national policies. What I tried to do is, is in expressing that it's it should be in pieces, the pun is intended, of course, is that they need to be more localized. The meanings of peace that are in Canada, for example, compared to Zanzibar, for example, are very different. And or if you take Syria as another example, what does peacemaking and peace mean in those countries? And how can they be pieced together again? That's, a, that's the other big question. It's not the imposition of one kind of peace onto the whole world. It's really an organic view where you take it from the ground up and you say, okay, how can peace be developed here and now for individuals, groups, and between groups? That's Anthony Adolph, author of Peace, A World History. You can hear more from him or more from our other guest, Peter Stearns, author of Peace in World History, in our complete interviews with each author at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also find links to all the programs in our series going back to 2002. There you can hear the program streaming. You can download episodes, sign up for a monthly newsletter, a free podcast, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to Good Radio Shows Incorporated, the nonprofit media organization that produces this program separate and apart from your local public radio station. Find out more and help if you can at peacetalksradio.com. In addition to support from listeners like you, we also receive support from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Support for Good Radio Shows also comes from a Spinal Health and Movement Center and Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Daves-Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. <laughs>